Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code STAPLE20. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Beekeeping for Newbies. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen today. I do appreciate you. As always, feel free to drop me an email, jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. That was all one breath. So, uh, okay. Well, I, uh, I recognize that I am a little bit late on the weekly podcast. I think I missed it by a day or two, so I apologize on that one. But... I think we're uh, we're back in business here. We got all kinds of notes for you. This is going to be the B Buzz episode seven. I don't have an actual episode put together for you because it seems like more people. I just I get a lot of emails, and the topics that you all come up with, I think, are are much cooler than the, than my ideas. So I'm just going to go through. I have several months worth of uh, of notes here. I'm just going to start rolling through them, and uh, if we get to a break point, we'll stop and make a separate episode, but I'm going to start off at the very top of the list here, and uh, <laughs> I wanted to, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't not laugh at this. So there is a review. Now, there, you know, obviously, you, you know, you can make some of the people happy some of the time, all the people happy some of the time, but you can't make all the people happy all the time. So, um, yeah, there was one really funny one that... It was a little tough on me not long ago, which was, I, I laugh at it because I think it's hilarious, but I guess whoever wrote it probably didn't. Anyway, this guy um, messaged me and he said, hey, I really appreciate the podcast. It was a really nice statement that he made. So he posted a positive review and it was funny. In the review, he says, and, and I'm quoting him as, as best as I, I should say I'm paraphrasing. He says, some of the bee podcasters out there are straight up weirdos. <laughs> and, and so I just, I couldn't help but to laugh. And I think he said, you know, he went on to say that I was not a weirdo. I think the Department of Veterans Affairs would disagree with him on that one. But I do thank him for the review. And uh, I think at least once or twice a week for the past few weeks, I've, I've laughed at the idea of the other bee podcasters being straight up weirdos. So thank you for that review. On to a weird and funny uh, note if any of you grew up, you know, probably like in the 80s and 90s and you remember Beavis and Butthead, I think they're on Paramount Plus right now. They have a new episode with Beavis and Butthead beekeeping. I don't think the whole episode is beekeeping. I think there's just an element relating to beekeeping in there. So if you have the maturity level or if you stopped maturing at around age 14 or 15 like I did, that would be a great fit to go check out that episode. 
There is also another one if you're laughing at things you can find online. And I'm not picking on this guy either, right? I think he's probably a really nice guy. And, you know, he's trying to learn and he's just putting it out there like, hey, I know I'm doing some things wrong, but I don't care. I'm going to have some fun in the meantime. It's uh, it's by Gold Shaw, S-H-A-W Farm. And look for the title, Great Failures in Beginner Beekeeping. This was a, a little bit of a disturbing video for me to watch. I'm not going to beat the guy up because I think he knows he's not an expert. He's trying, right? He's trying, but... Again, if you have a few extra minutes, you may want to check that out. It's uh, it's good, <laughs> it's good entertainment. Uh, as a little reminder, I once again did win the award. I have been officially recognized as this, and I want to thank all of you for your contributions and helping me get there. But this is, uh, uh, again, the worst bee club member of the year for 2022 at the bee club. So thank you all again for that one. You know, I just couldn't have done it without your support. Um, I think that all comes down to just me and my dedication to not attending any meetings and just being a bad member. But I did pay my dues and my fees, so hopefully that helps the club and can help them do some great things out in the world. Okay, on to actual beekeeping-related things. So I am doing a little bit of an experiment. I didn't mention this earlier, but going back you know, several months ago, there was some discussion around you know VSH-resistant queens, um, varroa-sensitive hygiene-resistant um, queens, and trying to raise colonies that you don't have to treat for Varroa. And I've been kind of, you know, really against that idea. I, and I know that people are doing it successfully. I just feel like once you start telling people, hey, you know, there's this other way and it'll be okay. And then they bring home their, like their VSH queens or they bring home um, colonies that are from VSH breeders. And then they integrate I should say they, they mate with, you know, their queens or their virgin queens are mating with drones that are in their area, and then they start losing that resistance. I think it might set some people up for failure. But that I still think it's a very, very cool concept. So what I did was this year I separated a couple of colonies. I, di I didn't mention it because I've had a whole lot going on, but I separated a couple of colonies earlier in the year. They are miles, several miles away from any other bees that I know of. I recognize there may be some in the wild, not far from where they are, but I have isolated them and they are, I did not treat them this spring. I didn't treat them at all this summer. I've pulled mite counts on them and I'm not seeing any mites. And I'm about to pull some mite numbers again here, probably this week or next week, you know, to see how they're holding up. My plan is to go ahead and overwinter them and without without any treatment and see how that goes. So, like I said, I haven't talked about it very much. I'm kind of hesitant to even mention it, but we'll see how it goes, and I will report back to everybody in the spring. Okay, so diving into a couple of questions, number one on my list here is, um, what is a cleansing flight? So a cleansing flight, and, and you can probably just Google and do a search for cleansing flight with snow. What happens is, you know, the bees are inside the colony and it's cold outside. They're not leaving and they basically are kind of storing their waste. And when there's a day that gets above, you know, 48, 50 degrees, somewhere in there, they'll leave the hive and they'll go outside and they'll relieve themselves. And that's what's, you know, that's what's known as a cleansing flight. When you see the pictures, particularly I mentioned, you know, cleansing flight with snow. Look for pictures, particularly like a you know northeast, northern, well anywhere in the in the country really, but 
places where they have piles of snow outside and they may end up with a warm day, check that out because it looks, it's nasty. I mean, you'll see outside the hive, wherever the entrance is, there's just these like streaks everywhere where the bees will go out and just really make a mess. But that's, that's all it comes down to is just them going out and going to the bathroom and taking care of their business and then going back in to ride out the rest of the season. Uh, someone had asked about feeders, and they're still kind of confused on different types of feeders and you know what some of the options are. Uh, again, I've talked about you know when you have a lot of colonies, when you have several colonies, it, it becomes a little bit easier to kind of open feed. Some people are very much against open feeding because they think it attracts other things that then leads to robbing. I have seen areas where I open feed that, you know, brings in some wasps and other things. But if the colonies are strong, they usually don't have a problem defending against them. There are, there has been some fighting and things. I've seen hornets actually pick up honeybees at the feeder and fly off with them. And I just, you know, if it was really, really bad, I I do put out these little uh, traps and it's just like a two liter bottle. You make a, you know, you cut a hole in it, you put some apple cider vinegar and a little bit of wine or something in it. And then you hang like an old piece of bacon or some fish intestines or something gross on the inside that's meaty. They'll fly in, they fall to the bottom, and they die. It's a great hornet trap, yellow jacket trap, tons of videos on those. So that's one way to kind of deal with them because the honeybees have no interest in going in there because it's, uh, you know, they're not carnivorous. But with the feeders, you know, of course, you have your open feeders like I just mentioned. You have frame feeders, which I do like because it's inside the hive. I usually try to put them towards the top. And then that way you can, you know, just take off the outer cover, inner cover, and hopefully it's right there near that top hive body, whatever that might be for you, whether it's a medium or a deep. And it's easy to refill without disrupting everything within the colony. There's also jar feeders. So sometimes you'll have a, where you would normally have an inner cover, you just take a, you you put a hole, you make a hole that's the diameter of the jar that you're going to use as a feeder and you can put that in there, and then you can put, you know, a uh, inner cover on top of that hive body, outer cover. So you basically have an empty hive body that's there that is just serving to use as a home for the feeder. I've seen that. It's fine. I've seen some places where they actually have a hole in the outside of the hive. Like there's a, they basically just have a top cover, and that's it. And that, that hole is either open or closed, and when they open it, they stick a feeder in and, and then that's it. And they, they can, you know, go by. In fact, if you, if you look at Ian Stepler from Stepler Farms, uh, they, ha- they can actually drive by and just look over and see the jars of sugar syrup sticking out of the top of the colony. So that's a great way to feed so you can see what the levels are without having to, you know, disturb the colonies. There's also baggy feeders. I've seen people do this before. They take like a sandwich baggie, put some sugar syrup in it to where it's kind of nice and flat, and then they just poke a few holes in it. And it allows the sugar syrup to kind of form a little bead and the bees can kind of suck the sugar syrup right out of that. I've seen that before. Entrance feeders. I definitely advise against entrance feeders because I caught a really good deal on some a long time ago and and people had advised, you know, don't use entrance feeders. And of course, I'm occasionally a little bit stubborn. And I was like, ah, it'll be fine. And then I saw why it's not a good idea. It definitely encouraged robbing. I had yellow jackets and other things coming right up to the hive and starting trouble. So I definitely discourage the entrance feeders. But like I said, top feeders are another option. So you basically take off your outer and inner cover and you have a large feeder at the top. Normally they have one of two systems that I've seen, not to say that this is all inclusive, but a couple of, of them that I have seen is 
one that has floats where you basically have water reservoirs or sugar syrup reservoirs on both sides. The bees come up through the middle and they have this little landing pad that they kind of stand on and they drink the sugar syrup. I used to use those exclusively and I really like them for being able to deliver sugar syrup, but tons and tons of bees die. It's, it's really bad. I, they get onto those little floats and they just slip off a little bit and they drown and you're cleaning things out and it's really gross. I've actually had, you know, left it for a week and come up there and have had, had the bees drink a lot, but then they don't drink at all. And then the dead bees end up with maggots in there and it gets, it just gets really pretty gross sometimes. The one that I really do like as a top feeder, and I think I got it from Man Lake, it's the similar kind of setup, but there's no floats. And then right in the middle, in the center where they come up, there's a screen, like number eight hardware cloth, that wraps around the top, goes down into those troughs, and the bees can walk down the hardware cloth and then drink the syrup and then walk back up. And it results in, uh, I haven't, I can't think of any bees that have died doing that. I guess it's possible they could die on the inside, uh, they're, they're dead on the inside. No, they could die on the inside of that, uh, of that hardware cloth and, uh, and then could get stuck in there, I guess, but it's much, much safer because they're able to grab onto and hold onto the hardware cloth and that makes it a lot more stable for them. So the top feeders with the hardware cloth, and I'm pretty sure Man Lake still sells them. I'll look it up while we're talking here and I will let you know right now. And yes, they have them there at Man Lake. They are $40 a piece. Wow. Jeez. Okay, so $39.95 if you buy one. If you buy five, it's $34.95. If you get you and 15 of your closest friends, you can get them for $27.95 a piece if you buy 72 of them. So um, they are awesome. They're pretty cool. But um, wow, it's getting a little expensive these days. Okay, back to the notes. So I think I covered everything on feeders. Okay, there's a whole other subject, and a lot of people have emailed and messaged around when they should feed, how often they should feed. And I think there might be some more questions in that down. Yeah, I got it down lower. We'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Oh, I have a note in here, and this is pretty random, as most bee buzz tend to be. But uh, I wanted to ask what your all's experiences have been. And you can hit me, you know, you can reach me, Jeff, at you know, beekeepingfornewbies.com, or you can also, if you're slightly more on the privacy side of things, you can go to more on the bees at protonmail.com. That's fine as well. But I'm trying to figure out how many people have had mentors assigned to them at a bee club, but the mentor was not interested in helping them. They haven't, they've, they've been distant. They've not been responsive. I've, I've had more than one person email me talking about how they've had trouble getting linked up with a mentor near them. And I'm just curious to know if this is kind of an isolated thing or if it's pretty widespread or not. So that's another another thing that I had here in my notes. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope that you're enjoying the show and are finding the information to be useful and valuable. In order to help keep the lights on, we do need to take a quick commercial break. Thank you so very much for hanging in there, and I appreciate you. We will be right back.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, everyone, welcome back, and thank you for staying with us today. As always, feel free to reach out if you have any questions or comments. I always enjoy hearing about your experiences, answering questions, and learning more about the challenges you're facing in different parts of the world. So please keep them coming. It's Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Now let's get back to the show on the Beekeeping for Newbies radio network. Okay, that's not a real thing, but I'm trying to make it sound more official, so just play along, all right? Thanks a lot. All right, we're back after a quick break there. Wanted to mention a couple of folks have picked up on that being ghost on the out, the exit and return music there prior to the commercial break. Got a chance to see them at the Blue Ridge Rock Festival this year. So that was really a good time. Uh, they had some some great music there, but I'm a big Ghost fan. So that was a good show. Okay, back to the action here. Things to consider when moving hives. Uh, I had a message a couple of messages recently about moving hives and considerations and, um, you know, what we need to do with that. So I'll tell you kind of a story about me and my hive moving experience, you know, just kind of give you some, kind of just give you some observations and things that I've experienced. So when you're moving hives, I think that somebody used to have a, a saying, it was something like me move them either five inches or five miles or something like that. There was a time where I had them in my yard. I think I had three or four colonies at the time. And I really, I wanted to move them because they were facing kind of uh, like a northeast. And I wanted to move them really so I can get a better view of them from my house. They were on, let's see, I'm trying to figure out. If the back window of my home was facing east, they would have been like on the southern fence line. And I just couldn't get a, a real good look at them unless I walked out of the house. So I wanted to move them along so they would be kind of facing west, um, even though that probably wasn't the best idea long term from like a overwintering standpoint, having that cool winter air blowing in there. But it was like my first couple of years, so I'll, you know, maybe you can give me a pass on that one. So I was doing research on trying to figure out how I should move them. And what I did was I, I picked the, the whole colony up and I moved it, you know, about five, six inches to the you know, to the one direction. So as soon as I say that, I can, I can already see two of my daughters talking about Harry Styles, but to, to move it in a direction that is east in this case. And I did that and I waited a few days and then I moved it like, you know, five or six inches again. And I would let it be, you know, a couple of days and let them get used to it. And it took a while, but I kind of was able to eventually move the colony, you know, about, I don't know, probably about 12, 15 feet away. So I got it kind of around the corner of the fenced in area and then to a point where it was now on that easterly fence facing west. And it worked. It was a long, tedious process, but it ultimately did work. When I had to move, like actually, you know, the house was sold and we moved to another house. I only moved about a third of a mile down the road. It was a pretty close move 
which if you're ever in that situation, it is a really big pain in the butt because you think, oh, it's really close by and it's going to be super easy. No, no, it was really bad. Um, oh, we'll just drive back and forth and load up the little trailer and it'll be super fun. No, nothing good about that. Get a big moving truck, pay somebody else and be done with it. But anyway, so I moved the hives at night. I closed them up, you know, after dark and then, you know, did some more moving things. And then like around midnight, I drove them from the old house to the new house, left them in the truck. And I thought, you know, I'll put them out in the morning and everything will be fine. So the next morning I get up they're you know, they're ready to go. They're getting excited. I get them out of the truck over to their new location, open everything up and they're doing their thing. Everything's going great. Over the course of the next couple of days, I'm still going back to the old house to get a couple of things out, you know, take a look at, um, you know, the condition of the property in the yard at the time I was doing some part-time real estate stuff. So I was actually listing the house. So I went back and I'm checking things out and I looked in the yard over where the colonies had been in the yard and there were thousands of bees that were clustered on the fence right above, um, you know, right. Like basically it was one of those fences that had like a bottom board, middle board, top board, and then all the fence pieces were attached to that. So right around that middle board, about four or five feet up, there were just clusters of bees on both pieces of the fence. And this is where all of the foragers left the new location that the new house went out to forage, went out doing their thing, and their brains were hard-coded to go back to that location. So I ended up losing thousands of bees, and I felt so bad. I thought, geez, how do I you know, get them back? And uh, I'm racking my brain. I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'll get a small like nuke box. I'll put them in the nuke and I'll move them back to the house and drop them off. But it it really doesn't matter at that point. I mean, they are foragers. That's the phase of their life they're in. You're going to take them back. They're going to go right back out again and they're going to end up back at the fence again. So I would say, based on the size of those clusters that were there, I would say roughly, I don't know, maybe 1,500 or 2,000 bees that I lost in each of the colonies during that move. So it still goes back to that like five inches, five miles kind of rule. If I had, you know, if I had the property that is the apiary today, you know, I would have just picked them up, taken them down to the apiary, had them down there for a few months. And, you know, once the life cycle of those foragers, you know, was done with, I could then bring them back, you know, bring them back to my house and have them at home again. But when you're moving them, like I said, just be mindful of the fact if you're doing a short or a close move, you want to make sure, you know, keep them five, six miles away, and that should help with that part of it. If you're moving them in your yard, just do it at a few inches at a time. One thing I have not experimented with is the idea of, like, um, let's say it's winter time, Maybe it's November, December, and you pick the colony up and you move it wherever you want to during the winter. And then you're counting on the fact that as all of the aging bees that are in the colony right now that have you know overwintered are being replaced with all the spring bees that it won't make a difference. So maybe I'll play around with that this year. Maybe when I move, uh, move some colonies around this spring, I'll see if I can revisit that and we'll see what happens. Okay, another thing to talk about next uh, on the list here, when we are not getting very far on this list here. We're, we've got a lot to do, so we're definitely going to be breaking into two or three episodes here. There's a recommendation here that I have about weighing hives and, and how to do it. So you have to think about you know, the weight of the colonies going into the winter. Normally, 
every area is going to be different. Even in an area where you live and where you've had bees for years, conditions every winter are going to be different. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I moved into my house around 2016, I think it was. And that winter, I'm pretty sure it was that winter. Yeah, it was that winter. It ended up getting uh, 16 to 17. It ended up getting down into like the teens and 20s for weeks. I mean, for weeks it was that cold. And that's not common. You know, we don't, we don't really have that here. We're typically near the water and, you know, we, we get a little bit of the warmth kind of from the water helps us stay a little bit warmer in the wintertime and a little bit cooler, you know, in the summertime. And it's usually a difference of about like five, six, seven degrees. So it was really cold. The river behind my house was frozen all the way across, which is about a thousand feet. So it was, I mean, it's brackish water. So of course it has a lower freezing point. If I would have, let's say, for example, my bees needed on average up to be 40 pounds, you know, a 40-pound colony going into the winter, that winter they probably would have needed 50 or 60. It was just, it was a tough winter. Being able to weigh your hives every season, I recommend doing this every year, and you can get, you could use a standard household scale if you want. Um, Whatever you have, try to, you know, try to work with what you have. Don't go out and buy something special, but you can take a piece of plywood, put the scale outside put a board, you know, across the plywood. You can do it however you want, whatever works best for you. But if you start maybe from the side, so you lift up one side, slide the scale with the plywood up and the, you know, a board, set the feet or the legs down onto that board, and then lift up the other side and then take a measurement of weight. But the regular household scale trick works pretty good. And try to measure every, you know, every season to get an idea what the weight of your colony is going into the winter. I I would suggest very off the top of my head informally, if you're in the South, you can probably get away with, you know, I don't know, in some places, 15, 20 pounds of honey. If you weigh the colony and it's 20, 25 pounds, they might make it just fine through the winter. Where I am, I like to be in that, you know, minimum 40 pounds, but really, you know, I feel good at about 50 pounds. You know, I've had much lighter colonies over winter fine, I've had some larger ones that have had a lot more that have not overwintered. But, you know, I'm targeting about 45, 50 pounds in that ballpark. You go further up north, you get into Michigan, Maine, Vermont, you know, Montana, North Dakota, some of these other places. You may need every bit of 80, 100, 120 pounds for those colonies to make it through the winter. But get into a habit of, you know, finding a methodology and an approach to weigh those colonies so that you can start documenting and keeping track of things. If you lose a colony, then you know, geez, you know, my area of 50 pounds was not enough. That's a tough lesson to learn. So I really recommend talking to people in your area, talking to other beekeepers, bee club, online forums, whatever it might be. And that's something that I've kind of been thinking about. I'm open to anybody's feedback on this. I was thinking about just setting up my own type of, you know, bulletin board or something within within our website that way people can start talking about things in there and maybe have a central place where people can kind of come together. Uh, if somebody thinks that's a good idea, drop me an email, you know, Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com or more on the bees at protonmail.com and just let me know what you think and, and maybe we'll set that up so people can have a way to kind of collaborate a little bit, but it, it's really expensive to lose a colony and then be like, Oh, well that stinks. I guess 45 pounds wasn't enough in my area. You know, try not to have them all dying be your measure of failure. You know, try to say, "Okay, cool. We went through the winter and they weighed 62 pounds going into the winter and in the spring I weighed them, 
you know, when I saw the first bees flying in the spring, I weighed them again and they were down to 35 pounds. Okay, great. They made it on 30 pounds roughly, you know, keep track of those things because it does make a difference. Okay. So uh, there's a question about moving brood from one frame to another to make a new queen. This is one of the most misunderstood things in beekeeping. I remember hearing it quite often when I was first, you know, initially getting into beekeeping and studying and reading. Someone says, hey, it's no big deal, man. If you lose a, you know, you lose a queen or you think she's gone, you just take a frame of, of brood and just put it into, you know, the other colony. Pull it from one colony, put it into another one. They'll make a new queen. No. <laughs> no, that's not the answer. So with the honeybees, they go from egg, larva, pupa, adult. Right, that's the way that the life cycle goes. So in reverse order, obviously you can't take an adult honeybee and make her into from a worker into a queen. A pupa is capped, right? That is a capped developing young worker bee. And you can't make her in from a worker to a queen when she's capped. Now going the other way, you have an egg. Egg is a starting point, that's the foundation. That's that's great. But what you really want, the best thing that you can possibly do in a situation where you are queenless and you need to make a new queen is you want young larva. You want that larva that has just transitioned from egg to larva and you look in there and you see just that little tiny, uh, it looks like kind of the shape of a C, very small and it's in a puddle of royal jelly. That's the kind of age that you want. So if you have a frame even if it has some capped brood on it, that's fine. I mean, that's kind of a bonus. It's always good to have some extra nurse bees, right? Because the first bees that are born in a colony become nurse bees. So if you have capped brood on there already, that's great. Nothing wrong with that. But eggs and very young larvae are perfect. You take that frame, put that frame into a colony that has a you know, decent population of bees that can then make a queen from that young larva. That is the biggest disconnect. People think, I don't understand what happened. I, had, I took a frame of, of you know, brood and I dropped it in there and they didn't do anything with it. It's because you have to have that young larva. That's a really, really critical component of that. And that's where I think a lot of people fell short. I made that mistake so many times. I remember a neighbor of mine, he called, he's like, man, I can't find my queen. Which This goes into a whole other subject. I feel like that's in my notes here. Uh, you know, I'm going to actually just add it in here real quick. Okay, so I added that in my notes. I feel like it's already in here somewhere, but we're going to go ahead and revisit it anyway. So anyway, super common problem. My neighbor hit me up. It's like, hey, I, I lost my queen. I don't, I don't know what's going on. She's gone. Can I borrow a frame of brood? And I'm like, yeah, no problem. Boom, I hand him a frame. And I'm thinking I'm doing this guy a, a service here. You know, like I'm giving him a full frame. We're good to go. It was all capped brood. So now I gave up you know, a double-sided frame of brood from my colony that was very productive and doing great, handed it to him. Now he's going to have all these bees are going to emerge and they're going to be ready to go out into the world and do great things. And there's no young larva on there at all. So then we both lost on that deal, right? I gave a bunch of young, you know, young workers, nurse bees to a colony that has no eggs and larva to care for. And I just lost out on, you know, several thousand bees for my colony. So making sure that you are giving someone else or yourself, if you're helping, you know, boost from one hive to another, make sure you're getting a frame that is not just a frame of brood. It's 
got to be a frame of young brood, preferably eggs and larvae. That's what you want to work with. All right, folks. So I have made it through probably a third of my list, if that. So we're going to go ahead and wrap up this B-Buzz episode here. I'm going to go ahead and roll right on and get episode eight going after this here. And uh, we'll just kind of keep the train moving down the tracks. And again, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I do appreciate you. And it's uh, Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Take care, be kind to one another, and we'll talk to you later. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.